Well, hi, if you don't know me, my name is BJ. I'm a staff pastor here. Um, and before Mike comes up to preach, I'm just going to read a little bit of scripture over our time from 1 John chapter 4. This is verses 16 through 21. You can just listen along. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he, can, uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. This is God's word. Thanks, BJ. I thought you were teaching this morning. <laughs> oh, about that. Well, good morning again, everybody. It's good to see you again. Um, if you would open your Bibles, if you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew right in front of you. But if you brought your Bible, or if you use one of those, turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning as we uh, continue our study through the gospel of Mark. We're now moving towards the end of Mark chapter 12. And we're going to pick up in verse 18 where Todd left off two weeks ago. Uh, this will be our final study in the Gospel of Mark for this year. We'll pick it up again in the new year, but I don't know if you guys are aware. Maybe it's been such a crazy Thanksgiving season, but next Sunday is the beginning of Advent um, already. So uh, the four Sundays preceding Christmas are the four Sundays of Advent. So we're actually going to have a special series that we'll be going through, um, and we'll be looking at the Advent season and focus our studies in December on the birth of Jesus by looking at how his arrival and by his arrival he ignited our faith, brought us hope, joy, and peace from the Father. So myself and the other two guys who are part of our teaching team will be looking at um, those topics through the month of December as we march towards Christmas. Can you believe it? We're coming down to the end of 2023 already. I don't know if it's been this way for you guys, but it seems like the year paced out pretty well until we hit November. And then it just slammed into another gear, and it feels like this year's just racing towards an end. This morning, we'll get one more time together here in this amazing gospel account of Mark. Now, this morning's text, as you're turning to Mark 12, um, will present us with two situations. We're going to have two distinct situations from each other. In each situation, a question is going to be asked of Jesus. And these two questions will be, will really conclude, actually, a whole series of questioning that we've been following since Mark chapter 11 and about verse 27. Uh, Jesus has been continually approached by people asking him questions. There were religious leaders um, that were challenging his authority. There's a group of the Sanhedrin. There were some of the Herodians that approached him as Todd taught two weeks ago. And here in our text this morning, we're going to have the Sadducees approach Jesus with the line of questioning. And then we're going to have a, a scribe approach him with his own personal question. There's been a, a nearly relentless barrage of questions brought to Jesus at this time. And they, up until this point, and including our first situation this morning, all of them have been seeking to discredit his authority. They've been trying to find a way to discredit who Jesus is and what he's taught. They're trying to trick him in his responses so that the religious authorities will have something to accuse him with, because we've been told, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, and even prior, that the religious leaders want to put him to death. They're looking for a reason. They're searching for a reason. And so Jesus has defeated their purpose at every turn, and will again, with the first question that's asked of him in our text this morning, but the second question is going to be a bit of a different story. And it's very engaging and intriguing to look at. 
And through all this questioning, the following statement from Peter Drucker has popped up in my mind many times. He said this, the most serious mistakes are not being made as a result of wrong answers. The true dangerous thing is asking the wrong question. What's fascinating about that quote for me is not necessarily what it says on the surface, but when we understand that there's a layer deeper to the questions that we ask, then we really want to consider the questions we're asking. We need to look at the intent or the heart behind them. And that does indeed become a very revealing thing. It can become a very dangerous thing when we're asking the wrong question because it's being asked from a bad heart. What's our intentionality behind it? The wrong questions being asked in this section of Mark's gospel are not wrong because Jesus didn't want to be asked questions. He's not bothered by being asked questions. The disciples do it all the time. The problem is the intent of the inquirer. The issue with these questions is the intention behind that question. It's the heart behind it. This will come clearly into view as we study the second section of our text this morning. And I think to get a really good picture of this, we needed to look at these two together. So we're going to go from verse 18 all the way through verse 34, but our initial reading, we're going to read verse 18 through verse 27 and look at these two situations separately and see how they tie together with each other. So would you pray with me as we begin? I'm going to pray and then we'll read the first section together. Lord, I just want to ask for help this morning. I want to ask for help in my ability to convey your word to your people. Lord, it's often my prayer throughout the week that you would give me a real clear understanding. Lord, that you would convict me before I share your word with others. Lord, this morning I just feel this need for your help to convey the depth of what's happening here. Jesus, these were real situations. These are real people that came to you. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to enter into this text and that you would teach us by the power of your spirit from it. Lord, we humbly ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to this church this morning. Lord, may you find us with hearts that are postured humbly, longing to know you more. Jesus, longing to understand your love for us and to love one another more sincerely. We thank you, Lord, for the unifying work that the Spirit does in this room as you bring all of us together into one body. And so, Lord, in a unified manner, we pray that you would reveal to us the deep truths of your word, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, and that you would give us, Lord, the ability and the strength to live them out throughout this next week and throughout the rest of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for being present. We ask that you would work, and we ask it in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, reading through verse 27, reads this way. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they... <laughs> we can't help but chuckle. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. To understand where the Sadducees were coming from, and, and we'll kind of peel the, the layers of this back a little bit, the Sadducees arose in the second century BC, so a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, and they rose up during the Maccabean Revolt, and they were closely associated with aristocratic and priestly classes, meaning they were more high class. 
They held positions of honor. In fact, most of the chief priests leading up to Jesus' time were, were Sadducees. And so this is kind of some things that's important to know about them because when they approach, if, if you were reading this and you're reading it in the first century, you would totally understand who these guys were and, and what kind of a question they were asking. But we need to dig into a little bit to understand it. Here's some things we need to know about them. They accepted only the books of Moses, the Pentateuch as scripture. They denied bodily resurrection. They denied future judgment and the existence of angels, demons, and spirits. So two things that we need to note amongst this short summary is Mark affirms this in verse 18 as well. Number one is they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that anything came after death. It was just over at that point. So they didn't believe in judgment after death. They didn't believe that you rose again in any way, shape, or form. And they don't believe in the existence of angels or demons. Now that's important when you look at the question that they ask Jesus and when you look at his response. Because sometimes Jesus will respond in a very specific way to people to kind of call out their disbelief or call out the inaccuracies of what they believe. And so notice that Jesus' answer to their question will affirm his stance on both of these two key issues, things that really do matter. Resurrection will happen. Notice his use of when in verse 25 in the first part of that verse. He says, when they rise, not if. And then at the end of verse 25, angels do exist. And we can biblically deduce that if angels exist, if you look at scripture, fallen ones do as well then demons exist as well. Now, this is important to know when you realize, and we'll kind of break this down more, but just to understand like the, the summary of why Jesus answers them the way that he does. The hypothetical situation they approach Jesus with, it's not out of nowhere. This doesn't come out of nowhere. They didn't just make up this ridiculous scenario and say, how's he going to handle this? No, they, they base it in Old Testament scripture. It's from Deuteronomy 25, which contains a case law that's known as the Leveret marriage law. And this was a way, um, it was a law that was instituted by God for the practical care of Hebrew families, and it served two purposes. That the family name would continue if a man had a wife and they didn't have any children, he died and he had a brother who was unmarried, that he would then marry her and continue the family name. And it was also so that property owned would remain in the family. These are very practical case laws that you can read all throughout Leviticus about. And so much of, you know, when you talk about teaching through Leviticus, I mean, you know, if you want to empty your church quick, tell them you're going to do a you know, series on Leviticus. But, but if, if you think about this, though, Leviticus is a lot of different case laws on how just to be a caring and loving society that lives in the fear and reverence of God. It's really full of different things that, that, that like distinguish God's people in the Middle East as serving and living and, and loving one another and serving the living God as opposed to any of the false deities of the time. It distinguished them. It made them the city on the hill. They were meant to be a light to the nations. And the very practical things that he gave them in that time was so that they would distinguish themselves as his people. And so one commentator noted importantly in this scenario, that the Sadducees came to Jesus with this test question not because they wanted to understand the law better. They weren't seeking to understand the law better, but so that they can make belief in individual resurrection look ridiculous. Their goal was to make it look ludicrous and even foolish to believe in. Here's where we get to what I was talking about at the very beginning. The reason why we ask the question why it matters, the intent of the heart behind the question, because they weren't really seeking to know what Jesus had to say about these issues. They were trying to disprove him and discredit him. Therefore, their question is being asked from a bad heart. The intent of the inquirer on behalf of the Sadducees is to disparage the words and opinions of Jesus and once again to have something to accuse him with. The heart is wrong. Wanting to understand leveret marriage laws isn't wrong. The problem is why they're asking the question. Isaiah prophesied of God's people about this very problem in Isaiah 29, and Jesus repeats Isaiah's words in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 8, when the religious leaders are accusing him. He says this, Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
These people will say the right things, but their hearts are nowhere near me. In fact, their hearts are poisoned. And it's the heart that makes our words pure or poisoned. It's the heart behind it. It's the concept that John reveals in 1 John 4 that I had BJ read earlier to begin our time. 1 John 4 verses 20 through 21 says this, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. You see, you could say you love God, but the way you show you love God is by loving one another. That's how the reality of that love is revealed. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21 says, and we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. It's not an option. It's not an option whether we love one another in this room if we are in Christ. It's accepted as a reality. This is a reality. We will love one another. And if something is wrong, and John talks about this in 1 John chapter 1, if there's something wrong with me not loving any of you, it reveals a problem with my vertical relationship with the Lord. Because he says in 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? You got it. If I'm walking in the light, my heart is right with God. I will have fellowship with you. Loving God begets my love for you. And whether... It's a statement or a question. The heart matters here, and the heart is revealed. Because we know what they believe, yet they ask a question with deceptive intent. At the very least, it was a mockery. The Sadducees' hypocrisy is not hidden in this situation. The people know. Jesus knows. It was common knowledge that they didn't believe in the resurrection. So in verse 23, when they close their question with this, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? They don't believe in that. This question is not an inquiry. It's mocking in tone. They think they've got the right answers already. You ever been asked a question and the person asking the question already has the answer? How little does that make you feel? How humiliating is it when someone asks you a question just to make fun of you or to make you look foolish? Well, let's learn from Jesus' response and try not to put our own sarcasm into it because we shouldn't do that. But Jesus responds beautifully. Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason, this is verse 24, why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. He says, Here's the problem. Here's why you're mistaken. And Jesus isn't just saying their question is mistaken. He's going to go deeper than that. And he says, here's where you're wrong in your hearts. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Two things that Jesus has given to us through his Holy Spirit, church. He has given us these two things. The ability to know the scriptures and to experience the power of God in our lives. Aren't you thankful? Doesn't that make you like glad and feel like warm inside that like God has given us through his Holy Spirit the ability to know what his word says and the power to live it out because his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, resurrection, lives in you. That's awesome, you guys. That's so exciting. We look at this, what Jesus says to the Sadducees, and we're like, thank you, Lord. It should just cause us to pause and thank him because he's given us this. By his grace, he's given us the ability to know his word and to have the strength to live it out. Jesus explains that when they rise, when they rise, they will not be married in the scenario they presented, and we learn something really important. Jesus teaches us not only the the, the issue that's going on in the heart of the, the Sadducees here, but he's also teaching us something about heaven. He's teaching us something about what happens after death. God established marriage for this life here on earth. It's not going to be the same over there. And some of us married people are like, That'd be, that's going to be weird. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we fully understand it now. But it's not going to work the same as it does here on earth. You see, marriage is of enormous value. When we recognize that God's character is revealed through our union with our spouse, that when he made man, that's human beings, in his image, he made them male and female, 
and that when they come together, together through union, through marriage, we represent the character of God. We represent even different parts of his character, just look at most marriages, you know? And when we come together, what happens in a healthy marriage? What, what happens? With, do I stay like crazy extrovert Mike? No, like my wife chills me out. She's made me an omnivert. It's awesome. I actually like staying home now. I know. Like, it's great, you guys. And do you know what's happened to my, my dear sweet wife? She's talking more. She feels free to be a little bit more outspoken. We even each other out together. We reveal the character of God, and it's a lot more balanced than me alone. Trust me. Some of you, I think, have known me that long, and you're like, yeah, Mike is much better married. That's a gift of God. That is a gift of God. But you guys, on the other side of eternity, our relations will, relationships will function differently. And we cannot let our earthly experience bleed into eternity and change the reality of what the scriptures teach. And you guys, Jesus reveals a small part of what our community life will look like in the new creation. It won't be the same as it is here now, and it'll be a new era. And it gives us perspective not only for what eternity will look like. I, I, I think it's just, it's like through that mirror dimly. It's hard to see. It's hard to understand. But here's how this impacts us, you guys. It's not about understanding what that's going to look like. It's understanding why your marriage matters now. It's understanding how significant and how impactful it is right now. If he's given us a spouse, if he has blessed us with a family, if he's given us these things that we might glorify him on this earth right now, then we need to seize this opportunity to show his glory through this relationship that is limited to our lives here. It means that he prepared this season. And for some, it's a season of singleness, but for many, it'll be a season of marriage, and that's what the context is here. The context is you understand that you're not going to be married in eternity and in heaven, but right now you are, so there's something very important that should be happening in your marriage to reveal the glory of God to the world around you. I believe this text reveals that marriage is not less valuable because it's not going to be a thing in heaven. It reveals that because it's something now, it is so vitally important that we get this right in this season. It's why our marriages need to be steeped in the scriptures. It's why we need to understand how to love one another through the light of God's love in us. And it means that we need to get this right now and not think that, oh, someday I'll be perfect no, we need to call out to our Lord and ask for him to fill us with his spirit so that we can live married to the glory of God right now. If a friend gives you a ticket to see your favorite recording artist after service, and they're going to be in town tonight, and they walk up to you and they hand you this ticket and go, got you this ticket, favorite recording artist is in town tonight, one show, then they're gone, and you're stoked! You're thrilled you get to see this recording artist, right? You've always dreamed of it. But rather than go tonight, you're like, but it is warm, cozy pajama night at the house. And I love warm, cozy pajama night. So I'm going to stay home. I'll go see him tomorrow. And immediately in your head, you're like, that's dumb. <laughs> it's not going to matter tomorrow. Why? Because they're going to move on. And that ticket is for what? Tonight's show right? How useful is it tomorrow? How useful is it tonight? How awesome is it to have it tonight? Right? Your marriage is so much more important than that fake concert that I just made up. Here, here's the point behind this. This, <laughs> do you understand the concept? Do you understand that if you only have as much time as God has given you to live on this earth right now, that we should be like Moses in Psalm 90. That's right, Moses wrote Psalm 90. And he says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's start numbering our days and realize that the time that we have to invest in our spouse and invest in our family is on a timer. And we don't know when it's going to go off. Maybe we should spend some really quality time with our spouses tonight. Maybe you shouldn't wait for date night. Now, we'll probably get next week, but I don't know that. 
I don't know that. And this is like just a mini marriage conference. Maybe you should spend some time together today. Maybe you should invest in those people today because this is the season we have to do this and we're not going to get it on the other side. And it matters now because God has given it to us for now. Jesus says things aren't going to be the same on the other side. They're going to be great, but this is a special opportunity. What he does say we will be like in heaven is like angels. He doesn't say you will be angels. He says you'll be like angels. Passages like this can get confusing. You know, people are like, I just know that that person in my life that passed away is my guardian angel. They're not chilling with you. They're not watching over you. Jesus is watching over you. His Holy Spirit lives in you, church. Okay? That is so much better. You're right. It is so much better. But you guys, we will be like angels in the fact that we will not be married in heaven. That's what he's talking about. There's no marriage. Not that we become angels. Notice that as Jesus is dealing with these things inside of them, these deep beliefs inside of the Sadducees that they have that they didn't necessarily reveal but were known, notice that in dealing with their thoughts around resurrection, beginning in verse 26, as he moves from, oh yeah, angels do exist, and then he goes into resurrection, he takes them to the part of the scriptures that they believed in. That's really important. He takes them to the part of the scriptures that they believed in. They believed in the Pentateuch. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They believed those to be scripture. So he takes them to the scriptures they believe in and shows them that they're wrong. He shows them with the words that they would affirm that they're wrong. He goes to Exodus 3, and he makes a very simple but very profound observation. And it's one of those things that's like so basic and simple, we almost overthink it. He says, listen, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead a long time when Moses comes around and is hanging out at the burning bush. They've been dead a long time at that point. Yet God is still their God as he speaks to Moses. And when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's speaking present tense. I continue to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet God, as he speaks to Moses, reveals this, that he's the God of the living and not the dead. God is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continued on, though their physical bodies died. And this is so, so important for us to remember, church, because in living for this life only, we're selling the love of God short. When we live for this life only, as if this is all that matters, we're, we're like basically living out a Sadducean lifestyle. Well, this is all I get, so may as well get all I can get. We're living like the Sadducees would. That's why they were the aristocratic part. They, they believe in getting all the good stuff now because afterwards, none of it, you know, there's nothing afterwards. So live your best life now. But you guys, what Jesus teaches them is that there is more. There is something on the other side. There is eternity that awaits us. Their physical bodies die, but this is so important for us to realize that the love of God is immortal. That God himself is outside of time. He doesn't just love us through our physical lives here on this earth. His love is far more powerful than that. His love is transforming us for glory yet to come. The love of God is immortal. It lives forever. It never dies. It never decays. Have you actually thought about that for an extended period of time? How many people talk about falling in love? And I've heard this terminology used. Well, we're, we're breaking up. Why? Well, we kind of fell out of love. Fall out of love. It's like a Chevy love. Like when you're driving around, you fall out of love. My dad had a Chevy love. You guys, you don't fall out of love. God's love is immortal. It continues on forever. Are you ready to be encouraged? Okay, check this out. Romans 8. Verses 28 through 29, I want to show this to you. You've probably read it before, but at the very beginning, it kind of sets the tone in this context. Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It is immortal. It continues on forever. And when you are in Christ, not only do you belong to him, but he is going to love you not only now, but all the way through eternity. And that's a really long, long time. We cannot become so badly mistaken as the Sadducees' church. We need to feel the warmth of his light on our faces as we believe in his word that resurrection is a reality because of his great love for us. Resurrection is going to happen because he loves us so much. The love of God continues on. Church, nothing is, can separate you from it. Nothing. Not the dumb thing you said yesterday. Not death. Not even life. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I think if we can grab hold of that and truly believe it in our hearts, we're going to know what peace is. So oftentimes, I think peace is evading us because we believe that we can become unlovable. We can fail our way out of God's grace, we can sin our way out of His affection. Where does Jesus want to be when you hit your lowest spot, when you've sinned and failed and been broken beyond any brokenness you've ever experienced? Where does Jesus want to be? Away from you? What does his love say? He wants to be right there with you. In fact, he died when we were dead in our trespasses and sin to save us. Someone you love, someone you care about, Messes up, and I mean messes up bad. I always think of one of my kids. If one of my kids messed up so badly that they were broken, and they were cold, and they were hungry, and they were sitting in some filthy puddle, some part of the world, what would I give to get to them? I think it's better stated, what wouldn't I give to get to them, to get them out? You think that that's just a human emotion? Or do you think that is the love of God in a small way that he's revealed to you, how much more? And Paul says, like, there's no height, there's no depth, there's nothing that can separate us from it. Stop thinking that you send your way out of his affection. You haven't. Jesus wants you. He loves you and he likes you. He wants you with him right now. Come home. The, the Sadducees were badly mistaken. They misunderstood the scriptures. They misunderstood the power of God. I hope we understand both. Now we get the next part, which is fascinating. Beginning in verse 28, here's the second interaction that Jesus has. One of the scribes approached, beginning in verse 28, and it says, when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one and there's no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Teaser for next time we're in the gospel of Mark. The next section, Jesus starts asking the questions. It's really good. <laughs> it's really good. If we believe that the love of God is immortal, then we need to ask this question. How does the immortal love of God shape us and our lives right now? How does the immortal love of God shape us? How does it change me? The power of God's love and the reality of the resurrection feeds into this next question which is asked from a sincere heart this scribe comes to jesus and recognizes he just handled 
this question from the Sadducees really well. And so he asks his own question and it reveals to us that this scribe is not coming to accuse him. He's coming to inquire. He wants to know. Seeking the wisdom of Jesus, he asks his own question about the greatest commandment. Now, this question also makes sense. And here's why. The rabbis had counted 613 commandments in the books of, in the books of Moses, all combined. 613. They classified 365 as prohibition, and they classified 248 of them as commands. Now, they further divided the commandments into weightier and lesser commands, big stuff, little stuff. So this is a legitimate question for a scribe in Jesus' time to have. Because there's so much and there's so many. And it's something you would ask a teacher and say, so what do you think is the most important? Maybe he's going to speak to the cultural moment. Maybe he's going to speak to things in the past that haven't been correct. But what's the big one? Like, what's the big commandment? And Jesus responds by quoting the Shema which is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. Pious Jews recited this every morning and evening, and the words affirmed monotheistic orthodoxy, the Lord is one, identified the primary affection with which people were to relate to God, love, you shall love the Lord your God. It emphasized the necessity to do so with one's total being, heart, that would be your affections, soul, that would be your spirit, mind, your intelligence, and strength, that's the will. It's this holistic response to God. Love God in this way. Shape our lives. And this is what God intends for his people, that the love he's given to us, keep us in whole mind and strength, that everything about us would be shaped by the immortal love of God, that love truly is the most important thing, as Paul would talk about in 1 Corinthians 13. That you can have all the understanding, all the knowledge. You can understand languages and translations and, and you could be a scholar. But if you don't have love, I could just go over there and start smacking that symbol. That's how useful we would be. That's how effective we would be in this world if we don't have love at the core. Now Jesus does something that hasn't been done before. He does something really unique in this passage. And sometimes if we've grown up in church, we would go right by this and not catch it, but we got to stop and we got to think about this. The scribe asked Jesus for one commandment. How many did he give him? Give him two. Love for neighbors is rooted in love for God. If you are keeping the first commandment, you are then keeping the second commandment. They are in conjunction with one another. Now what's fascinating about this is no one before Jesus had combined these commands. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. No one had put these two in conjunction like he did in this moment. However, from this point forward, it becomes a standard for his followers. Romans 8, Galatians 5, James 2, 1 John 4. Over and over again, these work in cooperation with each other and are accepted as a whole. As the same. How hard is it for us in our flesh to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Boy, we're really good at bickering. Highlighting our differences. Calling out all the things that are wrong with each other. But if we're going to love one another, we need to be filled with the love of God in our own hearts, in our own minds. In our own spirit. Have the will to live it out. This becomes a standard from this point on of how God's commandments are fulfilled through these things. Paul goes to work on this in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. He says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. Stop there for a second. What do I owe you? You can say it. What do I owe you guys? I owe you love. You're like, oh, you don't owe us anything. Oh, yes. And guess what? You owe me love too. <laughs> I'll take it. No, but here, you guys, we owe that to each other. That should be expected in the body. We are owed the love and affection of each other because of God, because of Jesus. He says, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. No wonder the Orthodox couldn't stand Paul. 
He says, you fulfilled the law by loving people. They're like, no. He's like, yes, and here's why. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You guys, the last thing that the church should ever be accused of is being unloving. Because it means we're failing the law if we're not. All the other things don't matter if we're not loving each other. The scribe agrees with Jesus. This is incredible. A scribe coming to Jesus and him saying, you need to combine these two because they are directly connected with each other. And he says, you're right. Verse 32, he says this, you are right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one. There's no one else except him. He affirms the, the oneness of God. And he says this, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's still a good little scribe. Did you notice he didn't use the name of God? It's tradition. They wouldn't use the name of God in this context. They were afraid to. It was too holy. What did Jesus do? You shall love the Lord your God. He speaks with authority. You ever, you ever step back from, from situations in Scripture and be like, he did speak with authority. He was unique for his time. They said, He's, he speaks with authority like even the spirits obey him. Yeah, because Jesus is God. Not only does this scribe agree with Jesus and his combination of the Shema with Leviticus 19, but he even refers back to another passage of Scripture. Did you catch it? I'll read this again. In verse 33, says, To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Does that ring a bell? It should. It's from 1 Samuel 15. He's actually poking back at a situation between Samuel and the first king of Israel, Saul. Because this is exactly what happened in that situation where Samuel confronts the disobedience of Saul, and Saul argues with him, which isn't very smart. But Saul had been asked to do a job, and after he disobeyed the command of the Lord, he claimed to have done so so that he could offer sacrifices. He says, well, the reason I haven't listened is so that I can worship God. I know. (laughs) It's like we've been taken back to like five-year-old me all over again. And Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. He's like, God wants your heart. God wants your obedience. Because that obedience is the outpouring of love that you have for him. If you want to know if a heart loves God, it's an obedient heart. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you long and live to obey the Lord. That there's nothing else you would rather do than walk in obedience with him. You see, the same transformative love of God is revealed in resurrection. It enables us to love him because he first loved us. It empowers us to love one another. And it is also strengthening us, the will, to obey him in this life. I think a lot of times we're trying to work our way backwards into that. Well, if I just do this right thing, then, then I'll be loving God. No, if you love God, you will do the right thing. It works in the other direction. If you're wondering why there isn't power to obey, it's because we, and and I'm not saying this is like for sure the thing, but maybe we need to go back and say, am I actually walking in love with the Lord? Am I receiving his love for me? This was a big part of this puzzle for me. It's not that I didn't love God. It's I had a hard time receiving his love for me. I had a hard time believing he actually loved me or liked me. And this was for years of my Christian walk. I still struggle with it. The enemy still gets into my head and and tries to convince me that God's not going to love me anymore. And do you know what I have to do? To remember? I'm right back here. Come right back to his word. 
and over and over and over again. How many times do we read in his word how much he loves us, that he chose to come and die for us, that God planned to send his son to save us from our sin. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. And when I read his word and I remember that, I see all that, that just strengthens and empowers me to obey. You see, all that strength to actually obey is lost when we don't begin with love. It's not there. And here this scribe, you guys, he gets it right. He gets this right. And this is awesome. He connects all the dots. And he says, you're right. God is one. God is one. And to love him and to love one another is way better than all the sacrifices and all the burnt offerings. Obedience is what God desires from his people. And he has loved us into his family so that we can obey him. Did you catch that? He has loved us into his family so that we can walk in obedience. It's his strength in us. It's his power. Wisely, as the scribe connects all the dots, he responds to Jesus, affirming what he said, and Jesus then responds to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe connects the dots. He understands. He agrees with Jesus. One thing remains. Belief. One thing remains. Entrusting himself to Jesus. Denying himself, taking up that cross and following Jesus as Jesus called his disciples to. Maybe that's a step that hasn't been taken by someone here this morning. Maybe like the scribe, you recognize what the scripture says and you agree. Maybe you've agreed with almost everything I've said. And you've looked at the word and you're like, that's true. But you haven't entrusted your life to him. But you haven't made Jesus Lord of your life. You recognize his lordship, but he's not Lord of your life. Paul and Silas were arrested once in a city called Philippi. Worship team, you guys can come on up while I talk about this and we'll close. As Paul and Silas were in Philippi in their jail cell, you're probably familiar. This is Acts chapter 16. They're chained up. And instead of letting their situation create despair, what were they doing? You guys know what they were doing. What were they doing? Singing. Praying. They're worshiping God in the jail cell. Do you think that was a warm, comfy, cozy jail cell? Do you think that was warm, cozy pajama day? I don't, I don't think it was warm, cozy pajama day. I think that was a pretty miserable evening. But what are they doing? They're worshiping God in the midst of it. And instead of letting that situation create despair, they start pouring out worship, an earthquake shakes the jail. You know the story. Their chains are broken. The doors open. But all the prisoners stay put. The jailer comes in. He thinks it's a jailbreak. His life would be forfeit. He's going to take his own life. And Paul says, stop. We're all here. And the jailer comes in trembling. And he brings them out of their cell. And he says this in Acts 16, verse 30. He escorts them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. You say that applies to you and your household. Belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Maybe like the scribe in Mark 12, you agree with Jesus. But maybe this call from Acts 16 is the call that you need to hear. And I don't know if someone's going to hear this online. I don't know if someone's hearing it in the room right now. But maybe that's the call. You're saying, I see. I know who he is. I recognize what must I do? The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. Make him Lord of your life. Maybe someone listening isn't far from the kingdom of heaven right now. And this moment was for you. Maybe this moment is for you to come to Christ. Be saved from your sin. I want to urge you, if this is for you, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Make him Lord of your life. Don't just recognize who he is. 
He wants to make you part of his family. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't know, but you do. And your spirit is present here in this room, powerfully present and able to do whatever that you desire to do. And Lord, I don't know, but if you are calling someone to yourself in this room this morning, I pray that they would yield. Lord, that they would realize that the invitation that's being presented to them in this moment is that they would be born again. That all of the sin and all of the old would pass away and the new would come. That they would see, Lord, that you are ready and willing to forgive them of their sin and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Lord, that they can have peace finally in their heart. Lord, I just pray that whatever it is that you desire to do, that you will be glorified in it. Lord, we ask that as we sing and praise you in this time, as we worship you, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to draw near to you, to long for that obedient heart that your love begets in us and Lord that we would we would walk in an obedient way glorifying you with our lives Lord empowered by you as your people thank you Lord for your forgiveness thank you for your goodness and your grace your love overwhelms us Lord if there's someone here this morning that is ready to receive you I just pray God that you would stir their hearts to do so and to come forward and be prayed over. Lord, to be prayed over and encouraged and to be um, brought into discipleship and mentoring. Lord, I I just pray that you would stir them to come forward and to um, testify that you are Lord of their life. Lord, if there's someone here, if there are many here, I don't know, that need to do this this morning, would you, by the power of your spirit, would you just spur them forward? Call them. Confirm them, affirm them, love them, Lord. Work in them. As we take this time to worship, if anyone has responded to that call, I'm going to sit right up front in this front pew. Come forward and I'll pray with you this morning. Let's worship the Lord together and just celebrate who He is.